Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome to the Botham Richards Cricket Weekly Podcast. Before we start today's show, how does he offer a free beer sound? The kind people at Beer52 are offering a free case of eight craft beers sourced and curated from the best breweries on the planet. All you need to do is go to beer52.com forward slash wisdom and cover the £5.95 posted fee. Each case is delivered directly to your doorstep, so no need to leave the house. B52 is the world's most popular craft beer discovery club with over 150,000 members that they send a brand new case to every month. Each month's case has a different theme. Past themes have included beer from New Zealand, South Africa, Korea, all over the USA and Europe. As an independent British company, Beer52 are passionate about the UK craft beer scene and they continue to support it during this difficult period. If dark beer is not your thing, you can simply choose a light option and your case will come through with the award-winning beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Don't worry though, if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time. Just go to beer52.com forward slash wisdom to get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. Anyway, on with the show. England bowled West Indies out in no time on day five in Manchester to regain the Wisden Trophy on a day that saw Stuart Broad become the seventh cricketer to reach 500 test wickets. I'm Yajrana and with me to talk through all that and look forward to England's series against Ireland is the managing editor at Wisden.com, Bed Gardner, the magazine editor at Wisden Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, and the editor-in-chief of the Wisden Cricket Monthly magazine, Phil Walker. Um, we talked about it a little bit after the second test, but Joe, is this the best Stuart has ever been. Um, he took six for 22 on day three, took his 500 test wicket today, his third career 10 wicket haul. His test average has never been as low as it is at the end of this test match, now under 28. How, how good is this version of Broad? Um, it's superb. It's been fantastic since he came back into the side. I guess you would say in terms of is it the best he's ever bowled, you'd have to add the caveat that this isn't the strongest um, West Indies batting lineup. Um, and these have been favourable conditions for seam bowling, but he can only bowl out what's put in front of him, and he's uh, done that pretty impressively over the last two test matches. Um, and the batting was, I mean, the most fun bit, wasn't it, really? That was extraordinary. And also, it's easy to forget now that what well, England have won by 270 runs, that actually there were a couple of stages in this match where they looked in trouble. Certainly the Pope-Butler partnership on, on day one. Um, and then even the next morning when there was that flyer of wickets and... Broad smacked his 15, what, 33 balls, was it? So that was actually more crucial than it will look than it might seem when you look back on, on the result. 
Um, yeah, it was just one of those games where kind of everything he touched turned to gold. Even at the end, you come on and slings one down the leg side and, and gets a wicket first ball. Um, so yeah, it, it, unbelievable effort. And uh, Root was clearly very chuffed for him at the end. Ben, do you feel that Broad's importance to the team has changed, or at least England are realising how important he is? How important he is, and do you think that over the next two years, looking ahead to the two big winter tours in India and Australia, that he is more likely now to be the focus of the the plans for that attack than he was just two Test matches ago? Yeah, definitely. I think he he was sort of kind of slowly edging out of like England's overall plans now of the centre of the team, not not really justly, I guess, looking at the the numbers that he had, but he's just thrust himself way back into the centre. Joe's right that like it's not the, the strongest uh, batting lineup, but on that that third day he took six for twenty two. And when you look at the other bowlers between them on show, like the obviously Western has one who just gone past two hundred wickets. Jason Knowles one of the best bowlers in the world. Uh Shannon Gabriel's like as you know as quick as as quick as any going. England had what Anderson Archer Wokes, none of them looked anywhere near as penetrative as he did. And it's got to the stage where he's not just relying on those spells. Like because that six twenty two is spread across two innings uh, and he was just on it like straight away from when he picked up the ball he's uh yeah he he, he was absolutely brilliant and I think the, the batting point as well as well as obviously it's nice to see that he's got a bit of form back did you did you see the interview that he gave when he talked about how hard he's been working on it with Peter Moores at Knotts and that he's modeling uh his game on on Shane Moore now sort of exposing his stumps just so he can kind of swing at the ball I saw that ref- I mean that seems a, a strange person to model your technique on but well it is but I guess it's someone I mean I mean I guess if you don't have much of a defensive technique to work with then you've got to find a way to give yourself as many balls as possible to hit almost it's almost like a kind of a club cricket that you know take a leg stump guard and just uh and just swing it and swing everything but if it if it helps him get if he's if he's only ever going to survive 10 balls it's better he's scoring 20 runs off those than three or four uh but the thing for me that it spoke to is that he's obviously just um uh, he's working so hard to make himself as valuable as possible to the England side because he knows how important things like that uh, can be and he also knows that like when there's this uh, strength and depth around that you need any sort of kind of cutting edge or take away any other deciding factor there kind of could be so I think he's yeah he he just seems like a kind of a, a player refreshed in some ways not that he was bad before the long break but he just seems to have kind of like a, a renewed vigour about him and yeah he could he's going to be around for for a long time yet you mentioned the batting you shouldn't underestimate you not that you are but we shouldn't underestimate that because he'd have been so, you see how much pride he has in his game and arrogance coursing in the right direction. He'd have been quite embarrassed by the collapse of his batting, I think, over the last few years. There was a little glimpse of it in Melbourne. Do you remember when he kind of closed his eyes and swung from the hip and he was clearly still shaking, facing extreme pace? But he managed to get a few away and I think he might have hit 50 odd, like run a ball 50, um, albeit on a slow one. Then it happened again in South Africa in the final test match. Was it the final game? When England were 300 for nine and then Mark Wood made 40, but Broad made 40 as well quite quickly and they put on 85 and changed complexion of that game as well in the same way that, as you say, Joe, they ch- it changed the complexion of this game just gone as well. If England had been 300 all out, first innings, then it's a different kind of game of cricket. Uh, as it was that crucial hour changed the complexion of it. And it's in his DNA to be a match winner. It's a cliche to describe him as a match winner. But he used to have that with the bat as well. Uh, and now it would be peak broad, wouldn't it? If he, if he somehow flips this around again and becomes a really dangerous number 9-10 in the latter part of his career. And I say that advisedly because 
as he's not slow in pointing out, he's four years younger than Jimmy Anderson and he's fewer than 100 wickets behind him. He may well just outrun them all. It's even more important considering that it's actually, England's lower order runs has actually been quite a big problem recently. That for so long, that was one of England's strengths. And he became an archetype of the problem. Mm. Yeah. And now, I mean, his innings uh, in, the, in England's first innings was something that Joffre Archer, for all the hype around his batting before he came in the team, hasn't produced in an England shirt. That Chris Wokes hasn't for two years now. And Mark Wood showed good signs in, in South Africa with the bat. But, but I mean, Broad, for that innings in South Africa, Broad was batting below Mark Wood in the batting order. You know, yeah, that, that's probably changed. 43 off 28 balls. From 11. To, to, from number 11, yeah. And obviously, with Anderson back in the side, he'll bat, he'll bat 10. But that becomes a new threat again. Uh, and one that they have been crying out for, really, of late. Obviously, the, the, head, the headline story is the way that he's bowling. They did uh, a kind of triptych of his, the three stages of Broad's career on Sky. And it was really interesting to see how the action has evolved over the years. And they showed him on his debut 13 years ago, maybe? Yeah, 2007. Sri Lanka. And... All arms and legs, but he was falling away quite dramatically in the action and he was slipping away. And, and you looked at that action and you kind of thought, how, could, how can you hold the ball up against the right-hander, really? And then they showed him two years on in the 9 oval game and he was more upright. And then you saw him now and the action is the perfect action for a fast bowler of that size and stature. Mm. And he's able now to hold the ball outside off stump. He's able to get that little bit of movement away and obviously he's lethal because it's naturally lethal against the right-handers or, of course, famously against the lefties coming around the wicket. He says himself, I've bowled better than I've ever bowled before. Uh, the evidence is, is irrefutable. Um, and he looks fit. And he's certainly hungry. Uh, were we on the show last week when I said I'd rather he was opening than Anderson? That was on the show, yeah. That was yeah. on the show, yeah. yeah. I, I, I totally stick by that. And... Uh, and yeah, it's it's a brilliant renaissance, really, for mm. a, a compelling and ridiculous cricketer. Ben, what are your thoughts on celebrity appealing? <laughs> uh, yeah. Was he in trouble for this? No, he wasn't. He was worried that he that he might be. Uh, and by the letter of the law, perhaps he should be, because you aren't suppo- you are supposed to appeal for decisions that. Uh, uh, by the letter that, of your dad. Yeah, yeah, and and, and he, he definitely didn't appeal when he got when he got Ross and Chase out. He gave quite sort that of was a, t- that was totally absurd that celebrity appeal because it wasn't even that out and he did a proper fist pump yeah. before the umpire had given it. There's yeah. a great photo of him with pro- double fist pump before the umpire raised his finger. Because so I, I have to confess I didn't see this. I read about it. it didn't it's, turn around at all. It's it's truly hilarious. Like it's the most absurd one of the is lot. Is it hilarious or is it just a bit out of order and disrespectful? Uh, well, that, that was the question I kind of had for Ben. I find it funny, but then that one you do feel, come on. Like. And that was the one where you could hear on the stunt bike Mod of the England players calling it a celebrity appeal yeah. as well. Yeah. Which, uh... Yeah, and I mean, from what from what he said, and obviously you've got to take, you know, the broad calculates everything he says. So you've got to sort of read, read between the lines a bit. But he sounded in his press conference like he was almost a little bit embarrassed about it, uh, saying that it's hard to control your reaction when you get... A wicket, especially in this instance, he said it was sort of a, a plan that he'd been working on over three or four overs that he'd been talking to Chris Wokes at mid-off about coming together. So just when he had beat the inside edge and hit the pad, he was sort of like, that was the release, just that the plan had worked. You can, And I can see the journalists just nodding their heads somberly. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. 150 years of test cricket and everybody's been able to turn to the umpire and say, how's that? Yeah, I was, it's hard to control your emotions. I was, thinking about, I was thinking about this on the weekend. I was thinking because I, I saw the clip of that celebrity appeal just before I went on the field. 
And I was thinking, there's no way I could do that. Like it's it's just instinct to to appeal. Yeah, but and, well, especially in, in club cricket with club umpires, yeah, you, yeah. you can never be sure what you're going to get. So if you're yeah. just running off towards third man. Um, and he's all, Stuart Ball's a really nice guy as well. He was helping young Keon Harding in the West Indies out before play. Totally unaware of the cameras on him as well. Um, yes, so, yeah. But elsewhere in the England bowling attack, Chris Wokes had a pretty good game and a pretty good series too. Quietly, has he moved into England's first choice team attack, Joe? Uh, I don't think there is such a thing and I don't think there can be a thing really. I think England have got so many options that we've moved beyond that. It's going to be based on fitness is going to be based on the conditions uh, and that's just the way it's going to be for the next few years and I think the England bowlers are all going to have to accept that and kind of put their egos to one side and, and just accept that's the way it's going to be uh, I think Wokes is not going to have a problem with that he's, he's got used to that in his England career so far but it was kind of classic Wokes wasn't it if you were thinking today who's going to mop up the West Indies he'd probably be the fourth most likely in most people's minds with Archer hasn't quite come good in that test yet and you've got obviously Anson and Broad being brilliant and then Wokes pitches up with a Fifer um, and does the job as he always does in England. The, the thing with Wokes, obviously, if we keep talking about the challenges ahead, which I've been reluctant to do, but you know, they've won this series now so I think it's okay to throw forward a bit, is Wokes hasn't got a very good record away from home and, and India and Australia are the two challenges that everyone keeps talking about. So if there is building towards those points and they are thinking of picking test teams based on those tours, then Wokes will probably naturally slip down the order a bit. Mm. But if you're thinking, we've just got to win this test match in England and pick the best side, then Wokes is going to be there or thereabouts every time. Certainly, you'd have to say ahead of Mark Wood, which maybe we wouldn't have been saying two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Yeah, it's a comparison with Archer, I think is most interesting. Since the Ashes, Wokes has taken 18 wickets at 20 in four tests. I think he did quite well in the two overseas tests in those four. Um, Joffre has taken 12 wickets of 48 since the Ashes. Um, so yeah, just in that in that comparison, I think Wokes is, for me at least, has probably just nudged ahead of head of Archer. Um, I, I think in English conditions, Wokes is at the moment a more effective bowler than Archer. I think Archer only gets a very, very small amount of lateral movement. And if he's not bowling express quick, and there are myriad reasons why that is, as we've, we've covered many times before, uh, the last of which is some spurious notion of his attitude, absolutely. But uh, the reality is that Wokes hits the spot time after time. Now, Archer is an accurate bowler, but Wokes gets a lot more out of a pitch and he gets a lot more lateral movement. And the stats are there to bear that out. Archer is, is the kind of the Cummins of the English attack in that if you actually look on paper, the, the amount, the percentage degree of movement he gets is very, is very slim as, as, as with Cummins. Um, so at the moment, Wokes is probably a more effective bowler day in, day out, I would say, than Jofra. Um, obviously Joffre has that extra gear but we, we, we haven't seen that uh, that much in this series there's been other things going on of course but they do hunt as a pack as Joe said there's been, it's now seven test matches since uh, an opposition player made 100 since the second test in New Zealand that's my own stat that's really? a good stat that's, that's a go. really good stat it's my own stat Quentin yeah. not get 100 my no, I got 95. Oh. And then Vandy, Vandy Dusen. See, you see, Ben doesn't trust your stats. Got 98. <laughs> no, no, of course he, he doesn't. Of course he doesn't. I mean, I barely trust it myself. So, so no one has scored a Test 100 against England since Mitchell Sandler? Since... No, Kane Williamson. Williamson, Williamson, Taylor, Williamson, Taylor oh, in the second and someone test, else. Yeah. William, and Latham. Latham got 100 in the second test. Stats. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the point is that they attack as a pack and they do it well. Yeah. yeah. Just... and. That sort of speaks to the, the wider thing that England's 
form, recent form has actually been very, very good. Sort of if you exclude the first test, which obviously is ridiculous to do, but that's the test that Joe didn't captain in. England have now won five tests in a row under Root and they've all been, I mean, you, you, it'd be harsh to criticise England, the, any aspect of England's play in any of those games hugely really, especially like Root's just marshalled what have been some quite tough situations in terms of, you know, time limits imposed by weather that might or might not be around or, you know, an option team like really batting hard on the, on the, on the final day. Uh, and yeah, he's done a, a really good job there too to also marshal those bowlers, which has n- not often been his strength. So. Mm. It's, it struck me as well, looking down the squad for this three-test series, that really everyone's put their hands up at, at different times. Uh, and I don't think you could have said that about many England series recently. They've obviously been very reliant on Stokes at times, who obviously was superb in the second test. But really, you go through the batting lineup and and... Everyone got a score, didn't they? Everyone got a, a relatively significant score. Butler obviously got his, his 50 in the final test as well, which would have alleviated a little bit of pressure and kept very well, I thought, in, in this test. Um, and obviously the bowlers were brilliant. And, and we're getting to a stage where there is less debate about England's selection, apart from all the fast bowlers that we keep talking about. But that is, that's the selection debate you want to have. Uh, there's not really that many spots where we're saying, are they worth their spot on the side? Obviously, that could change within two test matches, but we're in a much stronger position in that sense than we were not very long ago. Do you, do you think the Root is becoming quite a good test captain? Because we've been reasonably critical of him on this show in the past 12 months or so. Um, but as, as Ben said, there were some quite difficult conditions, match situations rather with the weather about that he, made, he, he actually got England through quite comfortably. Yeah, it's so difficult with captaincy, isn't it? Because obviously you put first innings runs on the board and it becomes such an easier thing. And you have a... Uh, pack of informed fast bowlers and again it becomes so much easier but second and third test matches lots of rain around difficult to negotiate and he's brave when he needs to be um, sticking Stokes and Butler in to open uh, late in the day I don't think many England captains would have done that they might have gone one or the other he went both obviously it didn't work with Butler but it meant the next morning they hit what 90 runs in 11 overs and gave themselves enough time to win uh, and again the declaration which was uh, allowed to happen because he scored so quickly in, in this match, which gave them that little session in which Broad took two wickets. Again, in the end, that they didn't really need that time, although I don't know if it's still raining in Manchester. But they gave themselves as much time as they possibly could to get the result. And I think Root should take a lot of credit for that. It'll be a team decision, but look, when they do badly, the the root, uh, the blame rate uh, lays with the captain. So when they do well, I think it's only fair that he takes the credit. Do you think... Uh, it's a one-off that he batted first drop this test match? Um, I don't think it's a one-off because I think there is enough flexibility in that team now that Crawley is going to be quite vulnerable depending on conditions, depending on Stokes' fitness. Uh, and then Root will just have to step up to three unless they decided to put Pope up there. I mean, I was certainly watching Pope in the first he was innings. brilliant, wasn't he? After T, he was just... And it felt like... I mean, he's batting at five in that test, which is which is fine. But when he's batting like that, I, I, I think six is, is too is too low, or is going to become too low very quickly. Uh, he's so good already that he should be shaping games, not reacting to what's what's happening. I tend to agree with you. I think with a rock solid lower order seven, eight, nine, then I can just about get away with him at six because you think there's enough time for him to make a score. Yeah. Uh, but we we don't have that, and Wokes is batting has has fallen off a cliff a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think the root thing at three is interesting because there's, 
overwhelming sense and logic behind it. And I think everybody recognises that, including himself. But he hasn't yet cracked it or shown any real desire to do it. I thought it was one of a number of impressive uh, tactical decisions that he's made in the last couple of weeks, really. That um, would have been a brave call. It was a selfless call. And I think it does overall reflect a positive sensibility that he does bring to the show. And I can think of many England captains in the past who don't massively like having the job, aren't by nature particularly exuberant or ebullient people, are doing it out of duty. Whereas I think Root brings a kind of, yeah, a, a positive vibe to the job that reflects in kind of the decisions that he makes. And, and you, you listed a number of them just in this series. Uh, and the overall thing, of course, do they play for you? Well, they've always played for him, even when he was struggling, even when he was down in the dirt in Australia and so on, and possibly making iffy decisions here and there. There was never any sense that people weren't playing for him. Um, so I think I think it's probably his team more now than ever before. And you forget how quickly as well time moves on. He's been captaining now for what, three years, four years? Three and a bit years, yeah, three February years. 2017. Uh, if they beat Pakistan, which is a big if, I mean, Pakistan have usually give England a good contest, what draws the last two series here and there. But if they beat Pakistan, that'll be three series wins in a row, which they haven't done since Strauss's team got to number one in the world in 2011, uh, which obviously says a lot about England's inconsistencies in that period, but also shows that they're starting to actually build something quite potentially significant here. Mm. On route three, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit conflicted with this because I think it was the right thing to do in this test match with uh, Stokes on being un- unable to bowl in it gave England more options of the ball. But I'm kind of confused. If you can do it for one test, why don't you do it all the time? Or is that just way too simplistic? Well, because from, from, well, from getting a team together, at the, at the moment, the, the one spot when Stokes can bowl is available in the team is, is the number three spot that Crawley is currently occupying. But if Root moves up, then you can have uh, so many more batting options at six because there aren't that many people scoring runs in the top three. So like Lawrence is the guy who's just out of the team at the moment, supposedly, or Joe Denley. Uh, and he doesn't bat at three. He's going to have to move out of position at Essex in the Bob Willis Trophy to kind of force his way back in with a current balance, if that makes sense. But that is, but at the moment, um, Crawley is the man in possession, even though he didn't play in this test match. If they pick a normal top six, Crawley is in, in that. And it would make more sense for Crawley to bat three and Root four, given that Crawley is by trade an opener. Uh, so I can see why Root stays at four for now. But I, I, think, it, I think he's just got to be flexible and the stubbornness to not want about three um should be relaxed but i mean it suggests that it is more relaxed if he's prepared to do it in this series in this series decider of a test match and also crucially it went pretty well mm, absolutely would would you have qualms say say it was not gonna be a long term thing but so a series long thing that they needed a a new number three what what would you say if it was stokes who went there rather than rather than root or do you think his bowling's too important i think my instinct is that it's a similar question with regards to Root and his captaincy and the, the mental drain that it takes. We can't imagine. We don't know. I think you can justify... Root can easily justify batting three against the West Indies in these conditions because you're not going to be in the field for four, five, six sessions. In India, you are going to be. You're going to be facing 650 for seven declared on a certain, certain two days. And then you're going to have to go out and bat. If, if you're Root, then you can understand why... He wants the extra buffer of two wickets rather than one. Same, I would argue, probably with Stokes because he is so central to everything. Um, if, if In two years' time, when Stokes has, has bowled himself out, and as I said the other week, bowling his cheeky off-breaks and nicking them out, 
then then you make a case for it. He obviously has the technique for it, but then but then you, you do run the risk of maybe losing the magic of Stokes at five, the game changing direction that Stokes has. Stokes organizes a, an innings at five, whether he it's slow heartbeat or whether he goes goes for it. He's the he's the pivot around which everyone else seems to work in that inning. So I can understand the logic of him at three, but I wouldn't personally put him at three. Certainly I not wouldn't, now. I, I wouldn't move Stokes. It's just going too well. I don't yeah, I don't see exactly. that. I think the other obviously big point here with route three or four is that the main reason is he, he didn't want to go straight out to bat. But with actually having an opening partnership who don't immediately lose a wicket mm. each time is obviously crucial. So if Root sees Burns and Sibley continue to put opening stands together like they have done, then he's probably going to be more inclined to want to bat or be happy to bat three given that he's not going to be in in the second or third over as he was so frequently with when we had a very flaky opening partnership. I think that's it in a nutshell. I think if England are 50 for naught, uh, whatever the order has gone in to the scorers, if England are 50 for naught, Root's saying, I'm, I'm in next. I'm batting next. But invariably, for, for the couple of years where he has, it was an experiment with him at three, he was in too early. Uh, I would like to see it long term. I think... I think a lot of people around the game would like to see it long term. Trevor Bayliss famously was pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. Uh, we shall have to wait and see. But the overall point, I guess, is that there is a flexibility and a versatility to this team that we haven't seen in a little while. And there are reserves for every slot who can come in and do a job. Well, I was, it was a, d- a different issue with England's batting order. But you mentioned but- Butler did bat very well in this test match. And for me, it was interesting that it came at, at number six, where his record is actually... Very good. He averages over forty there, um, uh, which is one of the best for England this this century. And I think that he's such a confusing Test cricketer because you think that with the skill set he has in one day cricket, he can just kind of you know come out first ball and start teeing off. But actually, he's essentially just a proper batsman, basically. Uh, and that almost the issue with him at number seven is that he's not allowed to do that, and he can't. I, I feel like it's almost when when you're able to hit sixes off basically any ball possibly then you're not going to be able to shepherd the tail as well because you think that like I could just hit three sixes here and then you end up getting out rather than someone who is sort of more limited number seven would like be like, well, I'm not going to be able to, I'm going to just take the singles that are on offer, hit a bad ball four and then you end up, actually end up milking more runs that way. There isn't a space for Butler in the team at number six at the moment. Uh, but I think maybe that for me, that showed the template for him that he should just be a sort of a proper batsman at seven, like try and go out the same mentality, even if he does end up batting with a number 10 or 11. Um, yeah, yeah, I found his innings quite strange. So obviously it was really important in terms of the match situation. 122 for four, England could have easily been rolled out for around 200 as they were in the first test. But I think um, Butler really benefited from West Indies potentially getting their selection wrong. When Butler was an 18, that's when they brought on Cornwall, hold a ball a couple more overs and Chase came on. And he kind of, he's a very, very good player of spin. And Raheem Cornwall and Ross and Chase aren't going to worry Josh Butler basically. And Pope and Butler made hay against uh, the that those those pair of spinners and did very well and it and England benefited from it but I think they I think Butler in particular really benefited from West Indies not playing out Sarah Joseph it was a very strange team selection wasn't it West Indies one Mm. and then (laughs) then to win the toss and bowl first when you when you play in playing one and a half spinners odd odd all round yeah there's set up for a draw essentially but even then it was an odd team selection and I mean I think I don't know they probably expect a little bit more with the bat from Rakeem Cornwall but it was but they got lucky with Gabriel I mean it looked like they weren't going to get any overs out of him at all it could have been mm. even worse mm. uh, and that was not really a shock given his fitness issues coming into the series 
Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a strange one. That they just clearly didn't trust their batsmen to bat first on pretty much any wicket, which is always going to be a major hindrance. Mm. Um, just just on West Indies, Joe, as you said, the, the heavens opened shortly after England sealed victory, and we don't know whether or not there would be more cricket in the day if, if West Indies bat a bit longer. But they were really kicking themselves about the way the way they lost some of those wickets, the run out of chase, uh, the the wild hook from from Hope. Hope. Yeah. Um, because it's a, they're quite a frustrating team. Their bowling tack's really good, but their batsmen just don't back them up at all. Only Blackwood averaged over 33 for them this series. Yeah, and I think it was the stat that hold, uh, holders the highest ranked batsman, and it what, like 43 or 44 or something? And he bats eight. Great, which he bats <laughs> eight, which, yeah, which says it all. Um, I was listening to uh, Carlos Brathwaite on TMS on the way in, who's fantastic. Yeah, he's great. Uh, isn't he? It's one of the good things about West Indies series. Ian Bishop's fantastic as well. Like, they do bring some brilliant pundits along. Uh, and he was just saying that he just felt like when West Indies ran out of puff, and that that is how it looked. But the the kind of adrenaline of the first Test victory and the and the high of that, um, they're obviously kind of buzzing, and then and it started pretty strongly in the in the second Test as well. But it it faded pretty quickly, and the batsmen didn't seem to have enough time to think about what they were doing to be able to fix it. I mean, they were all getting out in quite similar ways, caught caught on the crease, um, which was a bit surprising. The message wasn't getting rounds the change room a bit more but then you felt like if there'd been another there'd been a proper break in the series and maybe those things would have been um kind of countered slightly more effectively but in the end it's a funny series because you'll look back on this in terms of scorecards and it won't stand out as anything particularly impressive really um and i don't know if it's because we were just deprived of cricket or any kind of entertainment for so long that this was always going to seem like an excellent series but i i really enjoyed it much more than i thought i would in terms of a, a contest well the first test was was a classic that was a great test match and the second two uh well england battered west indies basically but the rain made it really interesting the the, the all the tension we felt was basically yeah. the weather having a couple of washouts made it really interesting just just um, on that briefly freddie wilde did a, a very good tweet i thought a day or two ago saying that this last game was simultaneously a good advert for four-day test cricket and for five-day test cricket. Four-day test cricket because you got a result within the four days and it ebbed and flowed across the four days. Five days because it bloody rained again. So it was quite a good point, really. Um, in This last game was a bit of an anticlimax, wasn't it? And Brathwaite's bang on. The West Indies invested so much in that first game that they just they turned up this morning and you, that you could sense it. You could sense it straight away. England only needed 30-odd 30, 30 overs to get it done. Uh, but because of the nature of the series, there hasn't been an enormous amount of jeopardy, I've, I've found. And so everyone kind of goes home feeling pretty good about life. The West Indies... That's what we want, isn't it? Yeah, probably... it's nice. It's nice the West Indies go with a head held high. They won a game. They by no means uh, disgrace themselves in any, in any way. And they deserve enormous props, of course, for turning up in the first place. Uh, with all the challenges facing them, so it is it's kind of there is a ceremonial element to the whole series. I thought, um, uh, and so we don't walk away thinking, "Oh, well, what what could have happened here and there?" We walk away thankful that it took place in the first place. I what? think it, the next series will be really tight. I think Pakistan will turn up with two or three gun batsmen and a gun pace attack. Uh, I think that one can go anyway. We'll, we'll get onto the Pakistan series in a bit, but just on West Indies, Ben, how big a miss was Darren? were Darren Bravo and Shimon Hetmeyer. You add those two guys to that West Indies middle order. Um, I think that makes quite a big difference. Yeah, and I, I, I hope they do go away sort of thinking like, well, it is great that we came over and it's great that we got a win because they could quite easily sort of feel a bit sorry for themselves given that, because they were just massively targeting this series as an opportunity to catch England cold from like months out. Like they had a, a much, much more thorough 
sort of warm-up schedule plan. You know, they were going to come over. They're already going to, I think they're already going to play a game against their A-side and have like a proper training camp in England and then play against like a few counties rather than just like one like trivial warm-up game and then come into the, the test series kind of running red hot and instead they've had to like sit in a hotel. They still played more warm-up games in England, oddly, between themselves. Uh, but, the, and, and yeah, Bra- Bravo and Hetmeyer are huge. I mean, you, you look at their stats recently and their stats in test cricket overall over a recent period of time um, and they're not that impressive but both of them played pretty key parts in the in the series win last time and and all yeah you're right that I mean given that West Indies actually through you know no credit of their own came pretty close to drawing those two test matches Darren Bravo especially who's got probably one of the soundest techniques in the Caribbean make probably the the most talented batsman they've got if he bats you know 100 balls in both those innings then they they draw those games and, and, and win the series rather than just retaining the trophy. So yeah, that, that's, that's pretty huge. And I think also the other thing is that uh, it's easy to look at the squad at the moment and think like, well, who could West Indies even bring in for, for Shy Hope? Is he just going to stay in the team by default from, from now on? But actually you'd think that Bravo and Hetmeyer will be in the team for the next game and he's going to have to really work hard to win his place back if indeed he kind of ever does because he's so important to the ODI team that he's almost not going to get a chance to Keep put bat. together a body Keep work. Keep for me, Shy Hope. We're batting at six or seven. Yeah, but D- Darich, I know he's looked, he struggled this series after the first, uh, the first test, but he has been basically their best batsman for the last couple of years. That would be, it'd be really harsh for Jetson him to get shy hope. He just hasn't scored right. a run. In they like, they also like the look of uh, Joshua Silver, didn't they? Who mm. who got a lot of runs in first class cricket. So yeah, it would even be a struggle for him to get in that in that position. But he's still even a thirty today before he played a, a not particularly sensible shot. Still played some beautiful shots. He's just one of those players you think probably will come good at some point. I felt a bit sorry for him today as well because it was right off the toe. I mean, it looks terrible, obviously. You're trying to save the game. But there's all those spa- all that space out there and he got in position quite nicely to play it. Got his hands through it, but he just towed it rather than, rather than middled it. I felt a, bit, a wee bit, bit sorry. A bit of empathy him. there for him. But. No, you know, if he'd thrown his hands at a wide one and nicked off the third slit, I think that's actually probably poorer than playing the shot that he played. But anyway, that's my own, my own reason. I thought, yeah, I think West Indies will view the, view the series as a massive miss op- missed opportunity. And also, I think today they kind of... Uh, because England bowled very, very attacking lengths, very attacking fields, so runs were there for the taking. And I think West Indies almost fell for that a little bit um, in terms of like they did not bat at all like a team batting for the draw. And just because the runs were there for the taking, they kind of fell for it a little bit. As Phil mentioned, there is a Pakistan series that starts very, very soon. Um just on England first, going into that first test of that series, how do you think England will balance their side? Do you think Crawley will come straight back into 11, Ben? Or do you think um, or do you think England will have a similar balance to their side? Could they potentially leave Don Bess out, who didn't bowl at all in the third test, but uh, had a really good run out? Yeah, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, sit on the fence, but I think for, for good reason, because like the success of this test match and this lineup basically allows them to... Uh, to just pick based on conditions and, and weather and all those sorts of things. So, I mean, Crawley, it's, it, the, the one thing about that is it is sort of unfair on Crawley in his development if he's kind of coming in for a test, going out, coming in again, uh, and you wonder how you can kind of like build a, a test career in, in that case. But I think that's kind of just the nature of it at the moment. So they'll come and they'll look at the surface and if it looks like a, a real green one and there's some rain around, maybe they'll pick all the bowlers or if they want to, you know, they think it's a bit, a bit flat, maybe they'll pick a team that can rack up a huge score so they don't lose the game it's a um uh so yeah i think i think they they, they could easily do any of the things but yeah leaving don bess out will be a uh 
will be something that they'll think about considering this game. He just, yeah, just, just a spectator, basically. Wokes is too high at seven on current form, isn't he? To, against a good Pakistan side who you'd think would get more runs on the board than West Indies and have a pretty formidable pace attack. I think that's asking for trouble. I think England had to win this final test as well. I think to the first test against Pakistan, that would be a, a overly aggressive way to go. And Stokes will be bowling. As well. And Stokes will be bowling as well, crucially, you'd hope. Um, so yeah, I'd go back to, to Crawley at three and then you just have to pick between your seamers and I'd still always be inclined to, to pick best, have your spinner there. Agreed. On, on the Pakistan side, um, Pakistan's probably their first choice side was skittled out for 113 in their most recent warm-up game. Sahel Khan, remember him? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's 36. Hasn't played a test for a while. He took a five foot in that and he took a five in their first warm-up game as well. Um, so, so who skittled them for a... So Sahel Khan... But it's team green versus was, team white. Yeah, so it was basically their second team versus see, their first team. Was, was he on team white or team So green? he was on the... Well, whoever the second team were okay. and he took uh, I don't know if I can make an incredible Hulk joke or anything yeah. <laughs> okay great uh, <laughs> um, and then yeah so he's got a pretty good chance of, of playing they, they could go in with potentially four seamers uh, Nassim Shaheen Sahel Khan and Mohamed Abbas which is um, yeah quite exciting Phil how do you see that test series going hard one hard one to call uh, I, I, I just want to see him bat really I just want to see the boy. Who are you talking about? I just want to see him bat uh, properly um, in a test match in England. He made 67 and hurt his arm at Lords, And I was there for that two or three years ago. Uh, I just want to see Baba Razam go and do what he does. I want to see him make 150 every test match and the results immaterial. I, I think anything can happen. I think, I think genuinely Pakistan have got the, have got the quicks to shake, shake the series up. You say they might go in four quicks. Um, it's a guess. I don't know, but uh, Selby was saying Yasser Shah. Mike Selby was saying Yasser Shah. Um, looks like a stick-on to play. Don't know if that's true or not, but I would be very surprised if they don't pick the leggy who, who won the game at Lords two or three years ago. Four years ago now. He's, sure. he's had quite a difficult no, time in test know, routes since. Know, and, al- and also, I think Pakistan went in with four seamers in one of their home tests recently as well. So I think it, it's, a, it's a realistic chance of that happening. Is Shadab Khan in the squad? I should know. He's in the squad. He Got went tap in the first. Yeah, game. went none for a hundred or at six and over. But it's a war game. No one watched it, so we don't really yeah. know how bold. When Pakistan have come over here in previous years, obviously not going back, but in the last 10, 15 years, you've always felt that they're a bit skewed in favour of the bowling rather than the batting. But looking at that lineup now. Um, or admittedly, their first choice batting line was skilled <laughs> yeah. 110 or whatever it was, 113. There are some some talents in there that, that they haven't necessarily boasted in, pre- in previous tours in recent years. Um, and with with Azza now captaining and batting in the middle order, I believe, and and obviously Baba as well, and Shafiq is back in the squad. Um, Lots of experience in England. Uh, this is yeah. Azarali's fourth tour of England. You compare yeah. that to the West Indies sides, which I know Hope got runs last time, Brathwaite, but a lot of them hadn't played a lot of cricket in England. It's absolutely crucial. Yeah, yeah. I think Baba Azam is just key though, isn't he? Like if, if he has a, a, a brilliant series, the rest can kind of bat around him. But if he doesn't, then you can see it kind of falling apart. He, he's the one that's properly been in form recently and the, you know, the, the, the one proper like world-class batsman in their lineup at the moment. I know that Shafiq and... Uh, Nazarelli have had their good times, but they just haven't had that success recently. Sean, Sean Masood to open the batting. 
Yeah. Presumably, I mean, he obviously did really well over the winter and one of the most improved players in, in world cricket, really. Uh, really bright man, captaincy material, they say, for down the line. So, you know, he can offer them something. Imam Ulhaq as well, will he be opening or is he not? Like uh, Abid Ali, is yeah. It? So Abid Ali yeah. made his debut recently. I think he scored. He's got. I think he's got two hundreds already. Yeah, he made hundreds in the Pakistan home yeah. series, didn't he? Okay, he's the only player to get a, a hundred on ODI and Test debut. There you go. Stats. This has been a great podcast with stats. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, but yeah, so there's, there's, there's a gap. Happen. There's a gap in the side because Harris Harris Sahel, who was in their side for their most recent test, hasn't toured. Right. So we don't know who's going to bat six. Uh, Heder Ali, who everyone's excited by, is not in their squad. They've released a squad, uh, I think, yesterday or today, um, and he's not in their 20-man squad. Fawad Alam, who scored 150 on debut years ago, he might play. Uh, or they could just play the extra bowler, pay Shadab at seven with Rizwan with the gloves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it'll be a really good series, but I think England have such an advantage just because they've played three tests. They're, they're going to yeah. be... They're going to be properly ready, whereas Pakistan have just had a couple of warm-up games at Derby, low, low-ish intensity. Although Nassim um, Shah looked like he was kind of hitting his straps quite he nicely. He looked quite good, the, yeah. The highlights yeah. I, saw. <laughs> I mean, that'll be if Nassim Shah up against England's in-form openers will be fascinating to mm. see how see how that goes. I can't wait to watch it. Phil's looking forward to Baba Azam. I am as well, but Nassim Shah, I think it's going to be great to watch this summer. I think your point is a really good one, actually. England are now match fit, and that might might be crucial, certainly in that first game. We shall see. It's first one, Old Trafford, and then it's over to Rose Bowl. Sorry, yeah. the Aegeus for the last yeah. two games. Emirates Old Trafford it's, it's as Emirates, well. Yeah. Yeah. Emirates. <laughs> sorry, James. And before the Pakistan series, England play Ireland in a three-match ODI series. Um, on an Eng- from an English point of view, first off, they they picked a pretty experienced thirteen fourteen man squad rather. Um, they've controversially left out Phil Salt, who scored a fifty-eight ball ton against Ireland for the Lions this week and Sam Hayne who has the highest list A average of all time um, Joe Denley's back in the squad so if you thought we've heard and seen the last one this summer you're you're wrong um, the 14 man squad is Morgan Moeen Bairstow Banton Billings Curran Dawson Denley Mahmood Rashid Roy Reece Topley is back for the first time in four years James Vince and David Willey considering that England have um, their test players unavailable that's a, that's a really strong really strong squad they're not taking on lightly at all yeah, and you can, it's easy to forget just how much batting strength they've got because yeah, this is this would rank alongside England's best ever one-day batting lineups, and they've got half the players missing. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really strong squad. I'm not surprised they haven't just thrown in a load of kids because there's a lot of players who have been waiting on the fringes for games for a very long time. People like Billings, for instance, who's played bits and pieces, hasn't quite got the record that you'd like at this stage. Um, big series for him. Big series for Banson as well, who's got a lot of players to get past if he's gonna get into that side but even though this is ODIs if you can score some 50 overruns that's really going to boost his case for T20 cricket as well I think which is probably his easiest route in for the time being yeah and it's, it's nice to think they would just like throw in the kids as they kind of have done against Ireland recently it'd be interesting to see what proportion of England's recent ODI debutants have come against Ireland pretty quite high but um depends on your version of interesting <laughs> <laughs> That is true, but but yeah, but also for for the likes of Bairstow and Roy, like this is like one of the very few kind of almost meaningful England games of cricket I'll get to play this summer, even this year. You know, there's that just there's so, the the opportunities are limited so much more that actually like a three match ODI series against Ireland becomes more important for them in terms of their careers. And the other thing as well is that this series does actually mean something in terms of the uh, 
DIC Men's Super Cricket League. World Cup Super League, uh, which determines qualification for the next time around. And you, you don't, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to start badly, even even if you win two one rather than three nil. You don't want to do that, especially you know, you know, you know might, might happen with as a, get get a few washouts and all of a sudden you're sort of like playing a little bit of catch up. And I mean, England will want to win it as well, not just a. Uh, not just just squeak into the World Cup, so yeah. and that Scotland win might be in the the back of their minds as well from a few years ago, mm-hmm. um, and, and the last Ireland game that was really Ireland. close. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, I'm glad they're a bit strong squad. Yeah, so it's worth talking about the um, the, the World Cup Super League. Um, so the the first seven teams qualified directly to the World Cup. So you really want to be in that first seven teams. Mike Athan made the point the other day when they're talking about it on Sky that. Even if you then qualify through the World Cup qualifier, that means you probably have to move around some tours that you've booked in that cost a lot of money. So you really do want to qualify for the World Cup directly through it. Um, and it looks like England are taking them very seriously. Um, ben, from an Irish point of view, who should we be looking out for? Uh, well, you still you still got quite a few of, of the old guard there that you'll recognise from England Ireland clashes gone by. Kevin O'Brien is, is still kicking around and may, maybe even better than ever. He's had brilliant T20i form recently. William Porterfield isn't captain, but is is still there. Andrew Barberney is the uh, the the Babarazam of Irish cricket, I guess, and that he, he, he he's lovely to watch, and he's uh, the Rolls the Rolls Royce of associate cricket. I've heard him described as right, is that, not is associate that anymore, but N- yeah. Nile O'Brien sounds like yeah, it's something, it sounds like something Nile O'Brien would say. Um, uh, so so yeah, there's 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 some so there's definitely some some batting potential there, and they'll uh, they'll they'll put up some some decent sized scores. I think it's just the the bowling against that England uh, batting. Like, there's no Tim Murtagh now. Boyd Rankin is 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 getting on a bit, although he's uh, obviously still a, a wily operator, and then there's just quite quite a lot of a lot of youngsters. So it's uh... alarm bells did go off when England Lions knocked it down in three thirty four point three overs or whatever it was. Ireland still did score three hundred though. They did, yeah, but it sort of backs up Ben's point that mm. they might be a bit bat- batting heavy, but we shall see. Yeah, um, it's, just, it's just great that it's a three three match series with something riding on it, as you say. Mm. Uh, there'll be criticisms of the supposedly convoluted nature of this this new this new super league but i don't i don't see it as problematic really it's uh, not that complicated no and it's not <laughs> it was overly compli- complicated on sky i thought the other day um fundamentally it brings about more cricket for for the so-called emerging nations um and significant cricket important uh, substantial cricket rather than the odd patronized game here and there. Uh, imagine how amazing sorry imagine how amazing it would be if one of our Ireland or Netherlands qualified automatically for the World Cup by finishing 7th like they don't ha- wouldn't have to go through a qualifier that would be absolutely amazing and also just Netherlands getting 21 like proper ODIs is great mm. as well I, I think it's a great thing uh, my issue with it is that not everyone plays everyone in the cycle <laughs> much in the same way as the World Test Championship so in ODI cricket that, that seems quite a quite a problem potentially i mean you could have a much easier run if you're not playing some teams than others uh so there's not there's an inequity to it but it's it's still trying to solve the inequities inequities at large of world cricket so i think it's got to be a good thing and you know you've just got to work with the schedule that you can and weirdly in this instance with the schedule they've got this time the inequity actually works against india and australia i think because they were quite keen to play the big teams that don't want to play that many three match series against the likes of Afghanistan or Netherlands, they've got a lot of their series are against the teams who you'd expect to do really well. So they're actually going to have kind of a harder time of it. Than, right, uh, it says your tip, and you don't qualify India. for the next... Well, oh, no, they're, they're the hosts. Host, so. <laughs> but, yeah. No, but it's, it's yeah. a fair point, though, because Australia in particular, I'm not saying they won't qualify automatically for the World Cup, but Australia in particular rotate their first t- choice 
bowlers loads and, and it's a reasonable drop off when between their first choice 11 and their second choice guys um and it will mean as england have shown that you might see less squad rotation which yeah. which will be is an additional uh challenge i guess for the for the bigger teams and more stuff riding on it you, you talk of australia the start of the the amazon documentary they'd won something like four games in 22 uh that kind of form gets you out of a world cup how how beautiful would that be so yeah i'm comfortable with it i'm very i'm pleased that it's that it's taken place mm. it's, you know the icc needed to do something i think to to quieten the doubt as regarding the whole 10 team world cup thing and and this is a decent first step, I would say. We might see Mitchell Stark playing in ODIs, not in World Cups. In 2019, he only, the 10 ODIs he played were only in World Cups. I think that's a, that's a good thing. Can I just, um, sorry, just, just an island. They, they obviously do have some promising young players. The one that I really like the look of is Josh Little, who I saw in action in the on 19 World Cup a couple of years ago. And at that stage, he was clearly a cut above the other Ireland players on offer, but was really mixing it against, you know, the, the other sort of, fully established sides with fully established youth setups at that point is sort of a, a brisk left armour took Forfa against England obviously last time uh, can also hit a long ball um, and uh, Harry Tector's the other one that is uh, from a, a proud cricketing family but uh, he's one that they really like the look of um, Gareth Delaney's really good too young batsman um, he was, he scored 89 bats three sometimes opens um, he bowls a bit of leg spin as well um, he scored a really important 89 in the um, men's T20 World Cup qualifier against Oman, who you might be thinking, oh, but it was Oman. But Oman had one of, if not the strongest attacks in that tournament. And it, it were it not for that innings, Ireland might not have qualified for the T20 World Cup. So he's a, he's a really nice young player. So hopefully see a lot of him in the series. Um, the, the Bob Willis Trophy starts this week, a meaningful first-class competition. The 18 counties have been divided into three groups based off their geography, and there'll be a final at Lords. Obviously, this is great, um, but Ben, you really like the format. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, why'd you laugh? Uh, just because you're happy. Yeah, yeah, this has just uh, given me a level of enthusiasm that I, uh, that I didn't expect to, to demonstrate. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, 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 I do like the format of, uh, of, of three groups of, uh, of six with the caveat that I think you'd, you'd want to just rejig them slightly from a, a competition point of view. Looking at it, the North group with Yorkshire, Lancashire, Leshire, Durham, Derbyshire, Nottinghamshire feels like Yorkshire, especially going to have a pretty easy ride. Lancashire as well will fancy getting out of that with not sort of down the dumps a little bit and the other three sort of... Uh, kind of also runs in general in Div 2 in recent times whereas the others you know in the in the central group you've got Gloucestershire Somerset and Warwickshire who are you know all, all Div 1 teams then Wishira, you know, the, the, the the Yo-Yo County and then uh, in the south group is probably the, the toughest of the lot when you've got you know Essex and Surrey have won obviously the last three between them uh, Kent as well up and comers uh, and then Sussex always going to be tough to beat Hampshire and Middlesex like those are those are six heavy hitting counties so I don't, I, don't, I don't know how you would do it in general. I mean, I guess in, in normal years, you'd be able to have more, more, more travel, I guess, in general would be, would be fine. But, uh, but yeah, I, I love, 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 love the format. I'm, I'm really excited to, to follow it. So you think it's a format that could last for longer than just this year? Yeah, so they've been quite keen to stress that obviously this isn't the county championship. This is a, a new thing. It's a, a one-off only. But in other competitions in other sports, you've kind of seen these things kind of starting to catch on like the alterations they've had to sort of develop by necessity they actually quite like and might stick around so in 
in Super Rugby. If anyone uh, <laughs> watches much of that, uh, Super Rugby eight or so. So normally Super Rugby is played between uh, a few different teams in a few different countries. So New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and there's a team from Japan as well. But Super Rugby eight or which is just the New Zealand competition for this year, has been like absolutely amazing. Like all the all the games have been thrillers pretty much, and they've sort of thinking like, well, why don't we just do this do this all the time and kind of using that as a a bit of leverage to kind of get more of their teams into Super Rugby in general when it goes between uh, back in between all the countries. So yeah, I, I, I could easily see it sticking. What do you reckon, Phil? You lost me towards the back end of that, that um, otherwise pretty persuasive point that you made. And I tend, do tend to agree with you. I like it. I've, for what it's worth, been advocating three groups of six for quite a few years. Uh, in normal times, 10 four-dayers, uh, to me is is a more appealing package than 16 four dayers uh which 14 te- now 14 yeah. sorry you're right 14 um uh you know and personally i would run it to a semi-final that they're there for in normal times i would have obviously the three group winners and then the best place runner up uh to play probably a couple of f- four or five day semi-finals to ensure a result and then a final at lords that's what they're doing this time around just without the semi-finals so that there is a five day i believe it's a five day final at the uh, at Lords in early October, yeah, finishing it needs to be a five day to get it in. Yeah, indeed, yeah, yeah. With the tournament finishing as late as October third, wow, potentially. Uh, yeah, they've firstly they've done excellently to get this up and running. Um, speaking to you know some big influencers within the English game, even up to a, just a few weeks ago, and they were saying no chance, no chance of four day cricket. Uh, Rob Key said it to a publication that I was involved in. Michael Vaughan said it to me as well. Um, they thought there would be issues around the furloughing system as much as anything else, let alone the travel, let alone the the, the biosecurity element. The fact that we've got some games of cricket, some proper uh, four-day games of cricket, first class as well. There'll be stuff riding on it. Players will be playing for their uh, for their their teams, but their averages, their own careers, um, and it's it's really it's an excellent. Uh, feet, I would say, by all the clubs, the ECB overseeing it as well. Uh, and as you say, to be able to get a few people through the doors as well is fabulous. Yes, yeah, cricket is at the, the forefront of the, the country's fight back against COVID. This is it. It's <laughs> always been a, a forward-thinking and ambitious game, <laughs> English cricket. But in all seriousness, it was amazing seeing, or just actually just hearing the like the ripple of applause for a boundary was really nice. Yeah, and two and a half thousand are in then for the Edgbaston and Oval Games next week. Incredible stuff, really. Um, and the games will be played in a great spirit, I expect. You know, there will be a sort of a celebratory element to it. And you imagine, I think we said this three or four months ago, you imagine being a batsman, an opening bat, who's been training now for nine, ten months since you last actually played a competitive game. You're not playing a shot, are you? You're not playing a shot for four and a half sessions because you're going to value your wicket so profoundly. And it's going to be great. It's going to be great to see, I think. Uh, whatever happens with the result, it will. the results themselves, there'll be curiosities, I think. But uh, the fact that it's taking place is, is great for the game. And sorry, just on, just on the format, I like the, the conference style in particular. You prefer that to three divisions as such. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but it would be interesting to see. I mean... I don't think it's going to make much odds in the immediate term, but I think down the line, the notion of three groups of six has been discussed at high, at high level. Um, and there's some in, real big, big people who are, 
who have been advocating this for a few years. So we've stumbled on this out of necessity and contingency rather for this this year. But I wouldn't be surprised if sometime down the line it becomes uh, well established because as we know, a lot of the smaller clubs, they don't really want to be playing four day cricket. It's very much a lost leader for a lot of the clubs. And when push comes to shove financially down the line, I wouldn't be surprised if this becomes the norm. Before we finish today's show, there's a very exciting film that's coming out soon, 501 Not Out, that charts a time leading up to and following Brian Lara's 501 for Warwickshire in 1994. We'll play the trailer now, and following it is a discussion I had earlier with its director, Sam Lockyer. I still don't think this makes me a, a great cricketer. I'm still just 24 and got a lot of cricket ahead of me. You know, hopefully when I get to a ripe old age, then I can be talked about as a great cricketer. Is a magnificent shot. Was that sort of Caribbean influence in Brian Lara's batting that made him an extravagant, explosive player? Teams hardly can score 500, let alone one single man. It's just a pleasure to watch. I mean, he's an unbelievable batsman. He's the best player that I've ever seen. He was a pioneer of everything, the way, the way he hit the ball, the way he timed the ball. I loved watching him on TV. He wasn't much fun to bowl to. Well, he was phenomenal. Brian, Brian Lara was one of the greatest players I've ever seen. One of the greatest players ever, ever walked on the planet. The West Indian batsman Brian Lara has rewritten the record books yet again, this time with the highest innings in first-class cricket. Somebody scored 501 in an innings. It's, it's unheard of. No other man could have done it than Brian. 197, Lara swings at that. Through the covers for four. The cheers from the Warwickshire supporters. Lara's bat in the air. Is... What a player. This guy arrived, and I just never seen anyone make batting look so easy. You're here for one reason, aren't you? Yep, absolutely. What is it? So Lara made the world record. Big work, BBC Television. Tell yep. us why you're here. 439, that's it. Want to say something else? No, just carry on, sir. I remember running on and sort of following you, and sort of not really knowing what to do with myself once I've got to Lara. You just wanted to be part of the moment. And yeah, when he first came to fact he was very small, a large apple. He was just slightly above his thumbs. He came from being Brian Lara, the test batsman, to Brian Lara, probably one of the greatest batsmen in the world. You know, in, in the space of a month. You know, we can look to him as a, as a leader. The immediate sort of birth, if you like, of a genuine sporting superstar. And he was a superstar. He looked the superstar, you know, he was cool, how he moved. You know, he just, he just knew this guy was something special. So Sam, thanks for joining the show. First up, tell us about the film and what inspired you to make it. Great, thanks Yaz. Yeah, it's lovely, lovely to join you. Um, yeah, so 501 Not Out, it's a feature documentary all about Brian Lara, um, who for me is the greatest cricketer that's ever lived. Um, and in particular, the film, as the title suggests, um, tells the story of his first class world record um, that he got for Warwickshire at Edgebaston in 1994. Um, so for me, it's quite a personal journey making the film um, in that I grew up in the 90s, um, a massive cricket fan. And Brian, Brian Lara was my, my childhood hero growing up. Um, so, yeah, for me, for me to make this film has just has been an absolute privilege and absolute honour. Um, and yeah, I can't, I can't wait for people to see it on the big screen. So um, does the film specifically chart Lara's time at Warwickshire or is it just about the 501 not out and then the, the aftermath of it? Yeah, so, um, so the film um, really tells the story of 
um, kind of La sort of Lara's um, ascent to greatness in 1994. So kind of that kind of six week period from when he uh, broke the uh, world test record, he broke Sir Gary Sober's um, long-standing test test record um, in Antigua uh, for the West Indies, and then and then he moved to Warwickshire, um, and then had an incredible season in '94 at Warwickshire, smashed all of the records, um, culminating in in the 501 uh, first class world record. So that is that's the kind of narrative arc of the film. Um, but as a big fan myself, I, I was keen to kind of go over to Trinidad and, and trace uh, kind of Brian's roots um, growing up in, in the Santa Cruz Valley. Um, and uh, we managed to track down uh, Brian's, um, one of his sort of school coaches, Harry Randas, um, that taught him cricket at Fatima College. Um, so that was an absolute thrill, uh, absolute joy to meet Harry. Um, lovely, lovely guy. Um, and everyone we met in Trinidad were, were, were brilliant. Um, the, everyone was so, so up for talking to us. They were so friendly. Um, and we've just, we, we, we shot some, some incredible, incredible interviews. Um, so yeah, hopefully that gives you a bit of a, a bit of a flavour. We we do touch kind of briefly on um, sort of Brian's legacy, um, kind of after the five hundred one and and his kind of, as I said before, his kind of rise to global superstardom and his kind of impact off the pitch as well. So he um, you know things like the Brian Lara cricket video game series, which was which was absolutely massive. I think Brian was one of the first cricketers to kind of. Um, be associated with it with a video game and it was also the, the jeans sponsorship um, with Joe Bloggs um, and yeah he became this kind of global icon that was kind of bigger than cricket and again that was kind of something that was really important for me to kind of touch on in, in the film as well. So um, you're a Warwickshire fan right? Yes I am yeah yeah absolutely. Well, I think I, I find it quite surprising how young Laura was in 1994 um, to achieve all that I think he was only only 24 um, when Laura came, what, what was it like as a Warwickshire fan having Laura at Warwickshire? I mean, did you, did you realise how good he was when he first came? And then he kind of developed into this, as you say, global superstar at that time. Yeah, I, th I think um, Warwick, Warwickshire got a bit of a deal with, uh, with Brian. They actually signed him just before he, he broke the world record. Um, so that was a that was a good bit of business for for the guys at Edgebaston. Um, yeah, I, I I imagine when he was scoring all those runs um, for the West Indies um, against England, I imagine they thought, oh, hang on, we've we've got we've got something really really special. But obviously he he scored the two seven seven against Sydney before that. He was he was a brilliant player, you know, already at that at that point. Um, but I think that nineteen ninety four season really kind of catapulted him to this like you know hugely you know successful, hugely incredible you know incredible cricketer. And really elevated him to one, you know, one of the greatest, you know, arguably I'd say the greatest cricketer that's ever lived. Um, naturally, I'm a bit, I'm a bit biased, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I actually grew up in Essex, so at that time, I wasn't actually a Warwickshire fan at that at that moment. But I, I moved up to Birmingham for university in 2002, and then that's when I kind of started following the, the Bears. Um, but my dad used to take me to Essex matches, um, so the, the county round in Chelmsford. And I remember in the summer of 95, the West Indies were over touring at, at that point. And I actually remember queuing for Brian's autograph um, as a child on the boundary's edge and just being completely, completely in awe of him. You know, the high back lift, the Calypso flair, just how entertaining he was. You know, he always had a smile on his face and just went out and just took it to the bowlers and, you know, would hit these incredible sixes, you know, these incredible fours. Um, he could always find the gaps, you know, in, in the field. That that's really struck me. Um, and I guess I was just kind of quite inspired, you know, by, by him really and, and, and everything that he was he was achieving so it wasn't until as I say I moved, I moved to Birmingham a bit later when uh, my kind of I'd, I'd always had a love of Edgebaston I mean Edgebaston's an iconic iconic stadium I, I remember being being there in 2005 for the Ashes and um, 
yeah, I saw all the iconography around Edgebaston, you know, the, the shots of Brian, you know, in front of the scoreboard. Um, the 501 there is, it's a massive piece of, of Warwickshire history. Obviously, it's a huge, you know, it's a world record. It's, it's, a, it, 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 I don't see the, I don't see that record ever getting beaten, you know. Um, so, yeah, but from a Warwickshire perspective, yeah, I think the club knew they were onto something special. But when, after those first few innings, he was scoring, you know, back-to-back hundreds, um, I think they thought, yeah, we've got something really, really special here. And obviously, they, they ended up winning the treble that season. And, and Brian was a massive, massive part of that. I've often thought that there aren't enough cricket films. So I kind of look, at, look across at football and there, there's, you know, there are multiple films about each of football's most iconic players. But in cricket, there aren't. You don't really have it. Were there, were there major challenges and stumbling blocks into making, making the film? That's a, re- that's a really good question. Um, I, I think for me, I, I, was, I was quite surprised that there hadn't been a film of the, you know, a feature documentary for the cinema, a theatrical release. Um, as far as I was aware, there hadn't been one made on, on Brian Lara before. So for me, I was like, well, I've, I've just got to make this film. I've, I've got to do it. Um, but yeah, it was, it, was, it was a challenge to get it kind of, you know, off the ground. Um, and we, we actually um, ran a crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo. Um, and that was really well supported all around the world. We had fans from all around the world um, pledging small amounts of money. Some would pledge larger amounts. Um, and that helped us kind of get, get things going. Um, and then we also were, were, well, we were very lucky in that Warwickshire came on board and actually helped us um, as a supporter with kind of in-kind support and access to people like Ian Bell. Um, we got actually interviewed Ian, who was absolutely brilliant. Um, Warwickshire also put us on to um, Curtly Ambrose agent, uh, a guy called Rich Sydenham, really, really nice guy. Um, and again, I think Curtly was the first person I interviewed for the film, you know, and that was, that was, that was incredible, you know, Curtly Ambrose, what, what a legend. Um, so yeah, and, and, then, and then a bit further down the line, we, um, one of our clients, uh, Marston's Brewery, came on board as a, as a headline sponsor. And again, that, that enabled us to, to, to move things forward. So it was a long, it was a long process. Uh, it was probably, I'd say, three, probably three or four years in the making. Um, but yeah, as an independent film, it wasn't like anybody had commissioned us and said, you know, Sam, go and make this film. Um, it, was, it was an independent film that I, I wanted to make so it was, it was a case of kind of driving it forward that way um, and yeah I'm just incredibly grateful for the, for the sponsorship from Marston's um, the support we had at Warwickshire um, and yeah the crowdfunders we, we couldn't have done it without the crowdfunders as well um, I'm sure a lot of people who've listened to the trailer they can watch the trailer by the way on our social channels and 501 not out on Twitter and Facebook um, but a lot of people who have watched it and heard it are really excited about it um, so Sam, how how do people watch it? What what can they expect? So where so where can people see the film? So we we premiered it in Birmingham in 2019 um, at the Midlands Arts Centre. That's a cinema across the road from Edgebaston Cricket Round, and it sold out. It did really really well. Um, we then had um, a screening at Edgebaston Cricket Round as well, um, and then another one at the uh, Queen's Film Theatre in Belfast, which is the leading independent cinema in Northern Ireland. And again that was really really well received um kind of fast forward to, to where we are now um, we actually had a uk uh q a cinema tour kind of in in the pipeline for for this summer uh, which was going to tie in with the original west indies tour in june um but obviously due to covid19 um that's now on hold um but we're looking to pick that up um as soon as it's safe we, we you know we've got plans uh, for the film to go out into cinemas in the uk and we, we can't wait for that um during the lockdown, it's been interesting because there's been quite a lot of interest in the film and people sort of saying, oh, when, when's it going to be released? When, when can we see it? 
Um, so yeah, the UK cinema tour is, is, gonna, is definitely going to happen. Um, we've got some really, really exciting news. Um, I can't really say too much about it right now, but um, in terms of a really quite famous, prestigious festival uh, where the film is going to be is going to be screened. Um, I can't really say any more, anything more than that. But again, in August, we'll, we'll release further information about that. Um, we're also planning some international screenings as well in the Caribbean uh, with the uh, with Cricket West Indies. They they've been very supportive of of the film, which which is great. Um, and we're also looking into a digital, a digital release. Um, again, hopefully a, a global a global release. Um, but again, we're, we're just working out which platform would be would be the best option for that. Um, so yeah, it's it's a really exciting time. Um, I would say if anyone is interested in, in in keeping up to date on on where things are at, we'll obviously share share updates with you guys at Wisden, and we're, we're so grateful for the support that that we've had at Wisden. Um, but yeah, people can access the Twitter, which is at five hundred one not out. Um, or the Facebook page again at five or one that's out and that that we kind of share updates on there and, and clips and behind the scenes bits and pieces and stuff so yeah that, that's a, a good starting point I'd say you can head to 501notout.com for more info on the film Ben, Phil and Joe thanks a lot we'll be back soon this has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast if you enjoy the show tell your friends leave us friendly reviews on the podcast after your choice and we'll see you next time Podcast Network.